You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Monster Talk is supported by listeners like you. Find out how you can contribute via Patreon or with reviews at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Your contributions, large or small, make a huge difference. Thanks. If monsters haunt the Shadowlands, the fringes of where civilization touches the wild, then it shouldn't surprise us that areas that are less accessible to most of us become a fertile garden for all kinds of critters and haints and booger monsters. While movies have taught us that the soundtrack to a good scare is an orchestra or a pulsing electronic beat, there are places where the dance macabre is accompanied by fiddle, by banjo, and by jug. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. When I was in high school, I was told by one of my instructors that there are no true mountains in Georgia. And I've been happily repeating this bit of trivia for 30 years. But in preparing for this episode, I decided to check and see what actually constitutes a mountain. And that's when I found out that the official delineation between a mountain and a hill has been abandoned for years. I'll put a link to the USGS article about this in the show notes. But as is often the case, I'm delighted to find out I was wrong. And hopefully, if you've been sharing this bit of misinformation, you can now correct yourself as well. Why does that matter? Well, the tallest peak in Georgia is Brasstown Bald. And a few years ago, I took my family up there because I was close to the ancient petroglyph site of Track Rock Gap. I had been doing some research about a pseudo-archaeology theory around the origins of that ancient site. And I'll, I'll link to that article in the show notes. But I wanted to go actually look at the site. And since I'd never been up there or to my home state's highest peak, we were so close, I decided to visit. And on the way, I came across this road called Booger Hollow Road near Blairsville. As you might imagine, this caught my attention. And I found myself wondering, well, why was the road called Booger Hollow Road? Was there a monster legend there? I had heard stories about 
boogerman or the boogeyman from my grandmother. And I guess the boogeyman is the classic monster whose important job is to scare children into obedience, lest they be uh, gotten for their sins. The history of booger monsters in mountain culture is a long one. There was a town called Booger Hollow in Floyd County, Georgia, near Rome, but it has been renamed to Boozville. Apparently, this is because of a prominent family name of Booze, not because of the slang for alcohol. But why the town was originally called Booger Hollow is still a mystery to me at this time. Other towns throughout the southern United States also speak of boogers. There was a town called Booger Hollow, Arkansas. They had a sort of hillbilly, folksy roadside attraction set up with a sign that said, Booger Hollow boasted a population of seven if you include the coon dog. It also had an amusing two-story outhouse, which is exactly the sort of visual gag that my father would be delighted at. There's a lot of folk etymology on the internet that says the word boo shares origins with the word booger, but I don't know if that's actually true. As fascinated as I am by word origins, running them to their source is often really tough. But that town of Boozville, it hints at, whether intentionally or not, the ties between the culture of the mountains and the history of moonshine and revenueers. I grew up in a family that had a mixture of strict religious fervor and a history of moonshine distilling and outlawed behavior. I remember seeing a lot of older gentlemen passing around a mason jar now and again, and I'm pretty sure they weren't drinking pickle juice. Some stories suggest that the legends of boogermen might be tied to scaring away revenueers and people intent on snatching liquor from stills. Spirits to protect the spirits, you might say. But whether these legends are based on protective hoaxes our genuine belief in supernatural hauntings, the mountains around here are full of monsters, and that's why we're going to be talking about that in this episode. Monster Talk. All right. Welcome to Monster Talk to Asher Elbine and Tiffany Terrell. Uh, we're here today to talk about uh, folklore of Appalachia, but we're also here to talk about your new project, the Kickstarter that was remarkably funded in one day. This is Anna O'Brien, the Ghost Days Anthology. So let's uh, let's let you guys do some introductions. So my name is Tiffany Terrell. I am a concept artist. I worked for about nine years, mostly in video games. I've since gone full freelance. Uh, I've done children's books. Yeah, do you name it? I can. I'll draw it. <laughs> I've always been like a big creature monster fan for a long time. I was going to be a marine biologist. And so I've always kind of had like a aquatic creature penchant to a lot of my work. But um, yeah, Asher hit me up about earlier this year. Um, we've known each other online for a bit. And he was like, come work with me on this spooky Appalachian folklore thing. And uh, yeah, it was right time, right place, right project. So awesome. Asher? I'm a journalist. I mostly work on sort of like natural history and ecology stuff, but I also have carved out a little bit of a sideline writing about folklore um, for anybody who will let me do it, which is not really as many people as you'd imagine. I uh, mostly got interested in sort of Appalachian folklore um, because of it. I just it was something that I started working on as a you know writer in high school and just kept putting aside and coming back to and putting aside and coming back to and my real interest in folklore and and writing sort of developed together so now that i mostly am writing nonfiction, it's really nice to kind of sit down and do uh much more imaginative stuff because they uh 
They don't let you make stuff up when you're a journalist. They shout at you. So uh, you got to have an outlet somewhere. Well, so much for the fake news story. <laughs> Do you um, – you're in Austin. Are, are you doing okay? I mean, I've got friends who work down there, and uh, they're boiling their water still. Is that – are you doing all right after yeah, that? Yeah. Uh, that's, a, that's a fun thing. Um, there is uh, – basically the, the river that runs through Austin, uh, Town Lake, is currently this – just soupy brown morass, um, mm-hmm. but it's really neat because a bunch of the a bunch of the hill country creeks run into it, and they're crystal clear. So you get these really weird zones where it'll be just like pure clear green water, and then it meets the main river, and there's just like a little bit of swirl, but it's like a really clear line. It's uh, it's boil water and uh, Aquafina. Well, I, I I hope you do okay. I love Austin. What an amazing town. Um, I'm, I'm going to say a little shout out to my favorite coffee shop, uh, which is uh, <laughs> Houndstooth Coffee. Oh my God, I oh, love yeah, that. Yeah, I know that place. Unfortunately, it's almost five dollars a cup. Uh, <laughs> that's all right. That's I'm that's, in San Francisco Bay Area, so it's, that's like a horrible number to me. So. Yeah, it's a little rich for my my blood, but man, they make a good cup of coffee. So yeah, <laughs> salute. Well, anyway, we're here tonight to talk about Appalachian folklore, but also about your project. Uh, Maybe we should start with talking about your Kickstarter. Even though it's been funded, there's still some room for... Uh, oh, maybe... Let me back up just a little bit. What is Kickstarter? Because there's going to be some of our listeners who don't even know that much. So Kickstarter is a platform in which you can basically present the idea for a project. And it helps if you have like a good pitch, a good presentation. And you basically say... I have this really cool thing that I'm, I'm willing to work on. I have this much expertise and whatever, I'm like whatever background you kind of just like provide like a little story so that way people can like, you know, get a sense for who you are and what, where you're coming from. And then uh, it, for the sake of transparency, just basically you say, I, I need this much money to like make my dreams come true, to fund my movie, to fund my app. to there's a lot of um, tabletop games Um like Dungeons and Dragons type stuff. If you guys, if there's nerds out there listening, but uh, there, there's I, a couple of us. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I, I, I have a feeling there's a nerd community that yeah, listens yeah. to the podcast. There, um, I, it's been, on the Facebook group. It's been amazing. Every time I say something about Dungeons and Dragons or role playing, everybody goes crazy, which is great. Yeah, yeah. No, that's like I do art for those types of games too. So like that's my people. But um. <laughs> But yeah, so like there's a huge gaming community there, video games, tabletop games, making movies, like like a lot of times like uh famously, what was it was it Joss Whedon? Somebody like like, like super famous people will come in and be like, and I'd also like more millions of dollars. But anyway, so like it's just a really good place and an arena in which you can crowdfund a project and just gain a lot of traction for something that you're starting to build. And we did it in like a day, and I, yeah, it was fantastic. <laughs> Blew our minds. Yeah, yeah, I imagine so. Well, the cool thing about it, uh, it is it, you know, a lot of people as as uh, creators, you know, they may make something that may be wonderful, but then, you know, you have, there's all these gatekeepers along the way, you know, you, you have yeah. to get a, an agent and find a publisher in traditional modes, but all the technology exists for self-publishing. But even if you self-publish, you can't know for sure if you'll cover the cost of all your work. So this is a very cool approach. And, I mean, we've seen several of these uh, that we've had on the show. 
But and I've obviously I've contributed to some Kickstarter things in the day. Most of the time, I end up doing something like where you can just do a contributing. Hey, good guy, good luck, guys. Right? <laughs> you know, the yeah. little the little one dollar. I appreciate what you're doing because my finances aren't that great. But uh, I'm really delighted that you guys got funded because this looks like a really fun project. So, um, uh, by the way, the artwork looks amazing. The writing looks amazing. What drove you guys into this? I mean, it sounds like, uh, Asher, you were sort of driving the the sort of thing towards a character you'd already created. Yeah. Um, so basically what happened was um, I was in high school. I was writing a lot of short fiction and, you know, before I went to college and got way too busy. And I just had this this idea for um, for a character who would be a kind of like a wandering character who could run into all these interesting folkloric and mythic things that I was really interested in reading about. And that character, as that character developed and became Anna O'Brien, um, it became a, like it became this. Uh, I'm trying to think of how to put this, it became like this process of of discovering this really interesting historical world that growing up in Atlanta was like really close geographically to me too. Um, and so my, my interests in sort of like the landscape of Appalachia and the folklore of Appalachia all kind of like got boiled into this character. And the more interested I became in the character, the more interested I became in the world and vice versa. Um, and so ultimately I, you know, I wrote a couple of stories and when I could like carve out a little bit of time of witch who could um you know go to like a different holler every week and sort of have a different adventure and um then i had some uh, i had some medical stuff happen earlier in the year and i was like you know what i've been sitting on these stories for a really long time i've been sharing them with friends i'd really like them to be in a place where people can see them and like them and so i uh i got in touch with tiffany and was like hey uh could i commission a cover from you and she was like, oh, this is really cool. And so we just started talking about maybe doing a book together. And it kind of like snowballed from there. That's fantastic. Um, how are you? Do- I mean, I want to get to the monsters, but how, how are you doing the publishing part? Like the who were you working with for actually getting out the books? So what we were initially planning on doing was doing Ingram print on demand, which is cheaper because obviously you're only printing the books that you need. Um, we're currently shooting for a stretch goal of $11,500. We're currently sitting at 11000 so I think we'll probably hit it. Um, but that will allow us to do a full print run of 500 books through the uh, printer Print Ninja. And we are completely self-publishing this. Like, when it's done, um, we'll be able to, you know, put it up on Amazon. We'll be able to try and get it into bookstores, you know, put it in libraries. Um, but it's going out just under us like we don't have an actual publisher that we're working with that's but that's very cool what about uh are you doing anything for like are you who's doing your editing are you doing it yourself or um so i had done some initial editing on it and then we've got a really fantastic film critic named gretchen felker martin who um came on to be an editor the manuscript is actually it's completely written it's completely edited um all of the initial art is done. We have a stretch goal for more art. If we hit that, that'll be great. Um, but basically what we're just trying to do now is like get the money in order to make this thing something that you can hold in your hands. Yeah, no, that's very yeah. cool. Yeah. 
rocking it. <laughs> it basically already exists. It's just now like this, the stretch will serve to like make it like even more shiny and more beautiful. Yeah, you, you guys were kind enough to share early uh, looks for me and Karen. Um, by the way, Karen couldn't be here this week, but um, thank you very much for letting us have a look. It looks beautiful. And uh, I, I, I'd really love to see a hardback of it myself. Uh, so that's, <laughs> I hope you reach your stretch goals. I grew up in the North Georgia mountains, you know, and uh, even so, I was I was surprised at how little of the folklore I ran across, you know, just in sort of natural oral his- history uh, or oral tradition. Most of the stuff mm-hmm. I learned from reading fiction or reading books about folklore and, you know, things like uh, the Foxfire books and uh, as uh, one of the inspirations you talked about was Manly Wade Weldman and his uh, Silver John stories uh sorry that's an interesting sort of uh character and some some fiction people may or may not be familiar with but can you talk about how you got your source material like where did you go to to find out about this folklore sure um so one of the main sources that i used and i really literally just started like years ago just started collecting books of appalachian folkways and folklore um and you know some of them are really quite useful stuff like strange tales of the dark and bloody ground is a really good primer. and then the deeper i got i started getting into books like witches ghosts and signs by patrick gainer which is a really fantastic compilation of mostly virginia ghost and witch lore um and then the the most and really the most useful book was the silver bullet and other american witch stories which is uh compiled by hubert davis which is this really fantastic treasury of um various like american witch narratives and motifs and folklore. And one of the things that I found in the course of researching this and, you know, also reading stuff like James Mooney, uh, you know, Myths and Legends of the Cherokee, um, is there's all of this, um, there's all this material, but there's, there's so few good books that are just general overviews of like Appalachian specific folklore. It's all regional compilations. It's all, oh, here's uh, folklore of the Smoky Mountains. Here's folklore of Tennessee. Here's folklore of North Carolina or West Virginia. Um, so in order to really get that sense of like what the regional um, motifs are, you have to get all these books and like read them and, and just compare notes and, and sort of try and put together um, a broader understanding of the sort of like folkloric systems that you're working with. You know, I, I find it interesting that uh, I grew up calling it uh, the Appalachians. And up until like a, a fairly recent episode of Monster Talk, uh, I just always thought that's what it was. But I, I apparently a lot of people say Appalachian. And I hear you saying yeah. that. Did you did you notice that or did you run into that before? The difference in the pronunciation or the pronunciation? Yeah. And <laughs> I, I don't actually know where that comes from so i grew up when i was younger saying appalachian and then when i spent time sort of like driving around in north carolina um for sort of unrelated reasons but i'll take any opportunity to get up into western north carolina uh i heard people say appalachian and somebody actually corrected me you say appalachian but actually it's like throw an appalachia i was like oh all right you wow, live here. I don't. So. That's really funny. Okay, okay, yeah, because I mean, the, the range itself stretches a long way. So you know, my, I grew up in it, uh, but uh, my my sister took me to task because she said it, when I say that it sounds like I'm saying we grew up as hillbillies, and that's not really the same thing. So uh, hardly. Uh, my now my grandmother 
I would say she did. I mean, my family was, you know, all into moonshining and all kinds of other things. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so we were we were not hillbillies. <laughs> um, well, honestly, it's it's interesting that you bring that up, though, because there's actually one other book that I wanted to mention, which is really sort of foundational to this project, which is called uh, Ramp Hollow by Stephen Stahl. And it has nothing to do with folklore, but it's all about the sort of um, logging and mining of, of Appalachia and how, uh, you know, the, the sort of American conception of, of the mountaineers went from being, oh, you know, they're these wonderful pioneers who are taming the wilderness to, oh, they're these backwards hillbillies who couldn't <laughs> find their way out of a paper bag. And really, they're not really using those forests anyway, so we can probably just cut them down and sell the timber and just leave them to be poor. Um, and it was this really interesting thing because when when we talk about Appalachia, there's all these really negative, nasty stereotypes about it that still really persist. And in a in a way, like hillbillies themselves are kind of like monsterized in uh, in sort of popular culture and stuff like Deliverance. Oh yeah, yeah. The the I was just actually looking back at that. You know, with the with the death of uh, Burt Reynolds, uh, looking back at Deliverance and and. There's still a lot of resentment up in North Georgia around the way that the uh, the people there were sort of presented in the movie. I, I mean, it was just a movie, right? You know, I, I hardly ever squeal like a pig. Is as, as my point, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Personally, myself. No, I actually just watched that movie recently for the first time. That was a uh, that's a uh, that's it, a trip. Doesn't it make you want to go rafting? <laughs> Not, not so notice now. I'm just like I was just more alarmed at like what John Voight looks like now. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he's where like... he came from, I was like, wow. But no, the one of the books that uh, that very similarly doesn't have anything to do with folklore. It, it, it kind of touches into it a little bit. Is a uh, Night Comes to the Cumberlands by Harry Cottle. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an older book. It's from 1962. So there's uh, a lot of uh, language that we don't use anymore uh it it poorly represents a lot of people but it is kind of one of the first like overviews of why the why that like why the entire region came to be how it is and a lot of it is just like yeah basically like the the people that lived there weren't seen as people so blow up the mountain and tear the trees down we're just going to take everything that we can and you see a lot of this like with you know, just even today, like the coverage of the region. But um, mm. yeah, I found a lot of uh, difficulty in trying to find specific bits of folklore that were kind of like, cause like people talk to each other. There was a, a solid culture that formed very early on across the Appalachian mountains, but it's always covered in this kind of like very piecemeal sort of way whenever it's, you know, condensed into sort of any sort of like folkloric tome or like it's either like, specifically about uh the Cherokee myths of the region or it's specifically about the um uh the the hoodoo tradition of the former slaves that lived in the region or something like that like like or it's you know, like um even the the book I mentioned uh only covers the Cumberlands and that it doesn't account for the Smoky Mountains it doesn't account for the Blue Mountains so it's it's very piecemeal in terms of like what information you're able to access so yeah, it's really interesting just trying like, trying to dig in and find anything that's cohesive. 
we read a lot, man. There yeah. was a lot of there was a lot of research that went into this. It, but it is it is not super mainstream though. It's it's still re- relatively obscure. I'm trying to think of the only other big besides Manly Wade Weldman. Uh, the only other thing that comes to mind is Earl Hamner Jr. and you know he did some work on the Twilight Zone that kind of touched on this stuff a little bit before he mm. went on to do the Waltons. That's a turn. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, it is. But I mean, he did some really interesting uh, episodes on on uh, the Twilight Zone that 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 touch on. And there was one where the, the kids go into the pool. Might it be called the Witching Pool? And then there's one where a guy. Uh, it they don't call it a. Um, well, it's basically a werecat story, but it's a it's it kind of ties into. Uh, uh, not the wampus, like wampus cat. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like a wampus cat, but it's a, uh, it's more, it kind of like ties the wampus cat story into uh, something like uh, uh, the Cat People movie, uh, the Val Luton. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. So I mean, it, to me, yeah. So anyway, but let's let's talk monsters a little bit. So what kind of monsters come up in this in the, in your book here? Like what what can people expect uh, when they read this? Oh man. So I'm- so many. There's a bunch. We've got um, the the book sort of kicks off with, and there's a lot of um, a lot of appearances by figures from the Cherokee oral tradition, um, like the Awa, which is this sort of like big, spindly, uh, malevolent spirit of madness. There's uh, uh, raven mockers that show up, which are these uh, sort of like Cherokee. They're called witches, but really they're more like these malevolent spirits that um, cluster around dying people. They're invisible and they they suck out all the remaining years of the life that person would have led. There's hags that change their skin. They're, the black shuck shows up in a sort of like fairly ambiguous way a couple of times. Um, and then there's also there's a couple of, of monsters in there that are sort of of my own invention, but... You know, in that like fine manly Wade Wellman tradition, they're invented, but they kind of are invented to be like they might have come out of a folktale. So there's a thing called the the Hog of the Bog. It's uh, um, also fairly like like a big razorback that's also a bit doggish and you know has this big like snaky forked tongue and is also a little bit chatty um, because I like monsters that talk. Uh, because it's more fun that way if you if you and your your protagonist and the monster can have kind of a conversation. Sure, a little bit. Uh, uh, yeah, what, what's their monstervation exactly? <laughs> if you will, yes. It helps to be able to bargain with a monster. Honestly, like if you have that ability, like I mean, there's there they always have an angle. You're able to make a deal. It's fine. So, so you said you grew up in Atlanta initially, like that was where you were early, Asher. Yeah, um, in Atlanta and in Dallas. I had some really good Tex-Mex in Dallas. Uh, That's about as far as you'll get. Yeah, I went to the Conspiracy Museum and uh, and then the Sixth Floor Museum and ate some Tex-Mex and then moved on. So, yeah, that's my experience. So. That's that's the experience. Yeah, the full tour, basically. Yeah, yeah, I saw the grassy knoll. I moved on. So, yeah, that's yeah. That's all I need. There you go. So, <laughs> first a good aquarium. But but guess what? There's a there's a Dallas, Georgia, which doesn't have uh-huh. either of those things, nor does it have good Tex-Mex. <laughs> <laughs> we win. So yeah, I'll probably trim this section down a bit. You're good. You're good. <laughs> 
I expected like forty five percent of this to be just like shooting the shit, so it's fine. Yeah, no, we're good. <laughs> yeah, now, ditto. How did y'all find out about Monster Talk out of curiosity? Oh, I've been listening for years. Um, yeah, uh, I don't fans. actually know. I reckon I know how I came across it. What's well, well, cool. Congratulations! I'm glad. Congratulations to me. I guess is what I was trying to say. <laughs> Long time listener, first time caller. Yeah, I've always wanted to call <laughs> yeah. into a radio show and say, long time caller, first time listener. And I've never had the opportunity. <laughs> but man, I want to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that'd be so now annoyed that I didn't think of that. Yeah. <laughs> no, seriously, you guys have have gotten me through so many long crunch deadlines, like being awake at like three in the morning, drawing things for Star Wars or some ridiculous monster and then monster talk. Like it's, Aww, that's, it's that's, fantastic to be on the show. Well, I'm a huge nerd. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> no, we, we were both very excited about this. Well, I'm, I'm glad to have you. I, I really, the Manly Wade Wellman stories, uh, you know, they're not, I don't think they're super widely known, but it's actually, there's this crazy thing where like, it's one of the first scary stories I ever read was a Manly Wade Wellman story. Uh, my grandmother. Was it the Silver John story. It was. It was the one with the behinder in. I can't think of the name of the story. The actually, actually, it was lying on my floor. Um, the Desert on Yendro. Desert on Yendro. Yep, that's the one. Yeah. And, and so what uh, happened? A desert, in case people don't know, is a uh, is a little mountain cabin. Oh, see, here's the thing. This is this is embarrassing, but I my great grandmother, who lived to be almost 105. Um, wow. Her, well, her daughter lived to be 100, and her son, is my grandfather, is 102 and still seems to be doing fine. So, <laughs> She gave me this book, and it was uh, – I believe it was one of the Alfred Hitchcock collections, um, which had that story in it. And I really liked it so much so – I must have been about seven – that I took all the, the pages out and stuck them onto my favorite tree. So <laughs> that is a very Appalachian thing to do. Yeah, and my, my mom my mom was like, Why did you tear up that book? And I'm like, I'm decorating. What are you talking about? Look at it, it's beautiful. Yeah. But now I can't I, I I've actually I've got uh, aspirations to repurchase that book, which is not very expensive. But that would be, to the best of my knowledge, the first monster book that i ever personally owned uh wow. and uh and so i, I want to get it and put it back in my collection like i still have my first hp lovecraft book which i had lost but my brother-in-law bought me a copy so thanks andy anyway uh, <laughs> anyway sort of like acts of my father kind of thing you know it's not the same book but it is the same book so you know exactly where's the harm exactly so <laughs> Sorry, but yeah, Wellman and his Silver John stories basically introduced people to a lot of real folklore and a lot of fake lore. But I, it's funny though because as I've done this show, and as you probably noticed, as listeners, a lot of what is fiction becomes folklore. It, it's, mm-hmm. it, 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 yeah, there's there's definitely some kind of genetic material being swapped back and forth between fiction and folklore and actual sightings, and I, I find that fascinating. So there's a really there's a really interesting example of that, which is one of uh, Manly Wade Wellman's most famous creations is the Gardenelle, which is a, um, a a sort of a cabin that's actually a big carnivorous plant that is maybe sort of a cryptid, but also maybe sort of a malevolent spirit. Um, and he, he that creation shows up in a couple of his short stories, and then 
something that you see people like reporting that they run into, but you do see people talking about it and just assuming that he got it from folklore as opposed to him just making it up out of whole cloth. Um, so like, I, I definitely, I don't remember what book I read this in, but I definitely remember reading a book that, that just had a, had a Gardenelle in it. It didn't call it a Gardenelle, but it was, um, it was very clearly a Manly Wade Wellman Gardenelle and you go back and look at when the book was written and it was written fairly recently and i guess whoever wrote it either didn't do their homework or just figured it's a good story and they're just doing their part to get it injected into the folklore fashion. yeah so that is interesting it's it just i it, well you know what at some point i'm going to finish doing my research on memes uh and then and then i, I want to get susan blackmore on and susan Oh, that'd be cool. To, yeah, she used to be a paranormal researcher and and then became a skeptic, and now she re- researches psychology, and uh, and she's gotten really interested in memes and wrote a book about it. And I want to have her on to talk about that because she's got this cool crossover. Because not only um, uh, did she study you know the paranormal, which I'm interested in, but she also studied memetics. Because if you study the paranormal long enough, you start to start thinking about. How do these ideas get transferred? It's the and, same thing. Yeah, point. <laughs> yeah. It's just like and and I mean whether they're real or they're not, uh, and, and, you know. I think we all know where I fall on that. But but I'm still interested in them. I'm interested in them. I find them fun and fascinating, entertaining and scary. And but they also seem to speak deeply to what it means to be human. And part of that is how we share ideas. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I can't get away from that. So. Um, but let's 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 talk about some specific monsters a little bit. You mentioned wampus cats. Um, do they? Yeah, yeah. Do they show up in your stories? Because I I actually know um, the answer to this sort of, but we have a <laughs> sort sort of. Um, Tiffany, it sounded like you had something you were thinking of. I was going to say we have we have a mask. It's yeah, the, so the first story has a, that. Yeah, um, it's 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 basically Anna's first adventure. She's kind of. Uh, by uh, fortune and fate, she's kind of given this very powerful. Uh, it's kind of a MacGuffin. It, it kind of kickstarts the whole her her, her whole journey. No pun but, intended, uh, yeah, probably. It, it's tied to a, a wampus. A traditional wampus cat, though, is what. <laughs> so the the thing with the wampus cat that's really interesting is that it's this sort of thing. It, it's this. It's often described as being either like a big sort of like gnarly looking cougar or just is a cougar um, or it's like sort of a ghostly cougar or it's a cat that walks on two legs. Um, And the legend around the wampus mask seems to intersect in sort of weird ways with the wampus cat legend. So the first story in the collection is based loosely on a Cherokee folktale from Tennessee um, about a woman whose husband is is uh, insane by the spirit of madness, the Awa, and so the shamans make her a um, the the medicine men make her uh, this mask, which will f- the, frighten the monster away. Um, and so, when I was reading into it, I found all these different versions of the story, and there was a more recent version of the story where. Actually, there's no demon of madness. There's just this woman who wants to see the secret rituals that the men are doing. And so she makes her this cat mask and the, and the medicine men catch her and turn her into a, a cat as a sort of like punishment. Um, 
And I haven't been able to figure out where that particular version comes from, but it seems like there's this whole complex of stories around this weird, unnatural cat, maybe a person who's been transformed or is maybe like a, uh, a sort of memory of this woman who wore this cat mask to, to beat this evil spirit. Um, and it's also like a really handy term just to apply to cat that you see in the woods that you don't know what it is. Yeah, it's to me, it's this will sound weird, but one of the earliest exposures I had to the Wampus cat was actually from the computer game Hunt the Wampus. Um, and it later on, there was a really cool game, um, called Mule, which was spelled like m.u.l.e, which is. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, which is multiple-use <laughs> yeah. labor implement. That was a Danny Bunting uh, game uh, from Ozark Entertainment. So I'm, I'm the fact that they were Ozark, I don't know if they brought in the Hunt the Wampus. Appalachia. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if they brought in the Wampus from the Hunt the Wampus game or from local folklore. But it really had nothing to do with the main part of the game. The main part of the game was a really fun, sort of cooperative yet competitive uh, trade game on another planet. But at the same time, you could earn extra money if you went out into the mountains and hunted the wampus on the planet you were colonizing. So um, I, <laughs> that's a little bit of nerd trivia there. But, yeah, but it's neat because the wampus falls into all kinds of categories. It, it falls into uh, traditional folklore, and then it falls into cryptids because people see them as sort of phantom cats, and that falls into the alien big cat, mysterious cat species sort of stuff that we talk about a lot. Um, Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose, it kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't that's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. 
So did, the Cherokee had wampus stories before American uh, was colonized by uh, Europeans. Well, or, or that's you... a little that's a little difficult to parse. Yeah, um, this is something where I have to I have to be straight up. Like, obviously, um, I'm coming into this as an outsider, and my understanding is entirely based on what I've read. Um, and I, I referenced this book earlier, and I, I want to sort of plug it again now that I'm in front of my bookshelf and looking at it. Um, James Mooney was this ethnographer who did this really incredible, um, this really incredible long-term study of the sort of like, um, history and, and same formulas and mythology of a bunch of Indian groups. But, um, the only book of his that actually made it out of this huge opus that he was planning on writing before he died, the, uh, some sacred formulas of the Cherokee. And that thing is a gold mine. Uh, first-person interviews and and um, sort of like materials that he got when he was talking to mostly the Eastern band, but a little bit of Western band as well, um, and sort of like cosmological stuff and and um, traditional sort of you know what folklorists call wonder stories, and also um, there's a lot of really good monsters in there as you might imagine, um, like the Uktana, which is um, you know the big horned serpents and but with stuff like Compass Cat, there are there are folktales that are Cherokee that seem to be folded into the legend now, but whether or not they were originally, for me personally speaking, not an has done a lot of research. I had trouble piecing together where even the name comes from originally. It sounds like an Indian name, but I just don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well. What other monsters appear in the text that you would like to talk about? Uh, Tiffany, you want to talk about Ravenmockers? I was about to say, can we talk about Ravenmockers? <laughs> yeah. So the Ravenmocker, you don't really, um, especially, I, I especially appreciated Osher's version of them. You, they don't really have a face. It's kind of just like a ceramic mask sort of thing. Okay. And this group of just like endemic witches who are kind of plaguing the land basically are like worshiping the Raven mocker as a kind of a, uh, an upstart God essentially, and doing dark deeds to kind of like usher forth its arrival sort of thing. It's, there's kind of a Lovecraftian bent to the story that I really like. Um, yeah. Dark right secret knowledge. Bleh. So the Raven mocker itself in a, is a, Cherokee legend. I'm unsure if it's something that appeared pre-colonization or post-colonization or like like where the divide is basically, but um, it's essentially just a dark spirit that is related to death rites. So like I think Asha mentioned before, like essentially it uh, kind of hovers over you, it appears and it sucks the um, all the remaining years that you have left to live out of you and takes that for itself. So if you are going to die in 80 years, it lives 80 years more. So it's kind of like, ugh, it gets very heavy and very existential very quickly. And the only person who can defeat it is like a particular type of well-trained shaman, essentially. And so if I, if I recall correctly, you can't see it. Like it doesn't really take physical form. So there's kind of a like a ghostly element to it that I really like as well. So it like it, if it wants to be seen, it can take certain forms and things like that. But but by and large, the only person who can actively see it and be like, 
there's a raven mocker is a super trained like 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 well-versed shaman in these in these particular rites in trying to depict them in physical artwork it's kind of interesting because like like how do you depict the undepictable but um Lovecraftian uh, problem. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, what does it look like? It's indescribable. Well, it's, it was eldritch and unnameable. I would have, so what's the problem? I don't. It doesn't help it, me at all. It practically <laughs> draws itself. I don't see what the issue is. <laughs> and that's the, I, was, I was saying like that's the problem with like like anytime you you tap the L word Lovecraft onto anything is just like well what does it look like? It's indescribable. It's completely up to whoever's drawn it before or whoever's created that imagery before. But I tend to, I don't know, like in my personal work, since I am like, I love creatures, I love like paleontological reconstruction. I try to like ground it a little bit in reality, but then just like tweak it a little bit to where it's a little bit like that doesn't make sense or those joints don't work or why is its hair flying around or something like this and give it to like, like an otherworldly flavor or something like that. So with the Ravenwalker, I tried to not give it edges. Like I did a, a I did a version of the Ravenwalker where it's, it's upper half basically doesn't have edges, but the lower half has these long spindly legs and these awful little like feet that are kind of grabbing onto the surface that it's sitting on. Yeah. And then of course, horrible dead eyed mask. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I'm very impressed with all the artwork. It looks amazing. Uh, thank you. So, can you describe Anna's abilities? The way I would describe Anna's abilities is it's a little vague in that way that the sort of abilities of most folkloric witches are a little bit vague. She has some element of just sort of raw magical power, but mostly everything that she does is training and technique and sort of wandering around is almost like she would not think of herself in this way, but as an ethnographer who's going around picking up this folk knowledge um, and incorporating it into her sort of like retinue of tricks. Um, but really her, her biggest power is that she's very observant and um, she's a good talker, uh, which is very important when you're sort of a, a smallish woman facing down ravening but somewhat chatty monstrosities. Been there. Been there. <laughs> Oh yeah, so did you um did you include the Snallygaster? Snallygaster's not in this one, but I do want to get to it in the future story. Okay. I also there's um there's the there's a great monster which is from Murphy, North Carolina, which is uh Tlanusi, the uh the giant leech, which is one of these great monsters that um shows up in a in a Cherokee folktale about this place where two rivers come together and there's this enormous like 10, 20, 30 foot leech that people when they try and cross the river. And you know, most of these stories end with, and then a brave person went and like killed the leech. And that story ends with, well, then a brave person to try and kill the leech. And we found his body later, and the leech had eaten his eyes and nose. So we just don't use that part of the river anymore. I have I have relatives up in Murphy. That's that's very cool. I, di- I didn't know that. It's a really cool spot if you ever get a chance. To, it's it's very um it's sort of like a little floodplains forest that's down uh, at the bottom of a canyon, and it's it's very uh, when I first went it was flooded out, but it's got this very nice kind of like spooky swampy vibe of like quartz and and like sloping vines, and it, it looks like a, the kind of place you might expect to see it. Uh, Tiffany, you said you had uh, been interested in being uh, a biologist, uh, marine biologist, a marine biologist in particular. Um, 
Did you get to draw any water monsters for the book? Uh, not quite yet. I although like one of the things that I have heard in my during over the span of my whole career, honestly, is that looks like a water creature. Like whether or not it's actually if it's like a house or a car or something like that, be, that looks like a water creature. I'm like okay, so I guess like my like endemic sort of like I like oarfish and goblin sharks and all sorts of like weird deep sea things with teeth. Like for a long time, I was I was um super into studying whales and dolphins and stuff like that. So like. That's something that people have always said about my work, whether or not I'm actually drawing water or things in the water at all. So it's kind of interesting. I guess that sort of like, it's art, it's subjective, but like whatever people receive from it, like I'm happy to provide. So that's something that people have always picked up on. It's kind of interesting. I mean, I could just imagine what you, I think uh, if you had uh, gotten into that, I think the, uh, the illustrations you did with your papers would have been amazing. I mean, your artists, I mean, it's, <laughs> These are some really good drawings. Probably scarier than a lot of people are used to seeing in a in a science paper. But yeah, <laughs> I, I've seen a lot of folklore art that is kind of um, it's kind of cute or it's sort of like mannered in this very like I am presenting a uh, um, a painting of a folktale. And Tiffany's feels really like she took a sketchbook to a witch's Sabbath and just drew what she saw. So it just has this wonderful, like, sketch from life energy to it. You're not pulling some Pikmin's model shit with us, are you, <laughs> Tiffany? Like, you're not actually sketching with witches? <laughs> One day I'll see them. Um, <laughs> no, actually, I, the way that I, like, I grew up with a mother who believed in, like, was it, if it was paranormal, ghosts, aliens, Bigfoot, things in the water, like she believed it all. And so like I hardcore like wanted to be a cryptozoologist up until I was like, wait a minute, like and, like in my like teens. So like the idea of folklore and natural history being blended, I don't I don't know. Like I've always like, had kind of like a natural sensibility for that. So the idea of you're watching an animal, is the animal like roaring all the time or posing like aggressively all the time? No. So like why would you draw a Bigfoot doing that? I don't know. Like there's a logical like leap for me at least in that I want to depict things as if you were like the viewer was witnessing the monster because if you were seeing the monster, you would be the viewer. So, like, I don't know. That's kind of the sensibility I think, that I try to approach all of my, like, like quote-unquote paranormal or spooky or horror type of things with. I want to I jump in on that also because one of the sensibilities that I kind of tried to bring to these stories is that they're, they're sort of like folklore-inflected fantasy, but they're really deeply rooted in the, the sort of, like, lived ecology and the lived history of the Southern <laughs> Appalachians. And I really like looking at folklore and these sort of like supernatural ecosystems as ecosystems where, mm -hmm. yes, you may be witches. There are also salamanders like under the logs and the when the forests are cut down by loggers, like it's not just the salamanders that are affected. It's the sort of like spooky entities that are affected in some way, too. And, and just trying to like build this world. Um, the thing that I think George R. R. Martin is brilliant about in Game of Thrones is that he presents a medieval world that medieval people kind of thought that they lived in. 
and takes all that sort of like bestiary stuff and like magic in far off lands, takes it 100% seriously. And we're kind of doing the same thing in this book where it's, if you read these, these stories collected and stuff like the silver bullet, people lived in a world where witches were real and ghosts were real and these various monsters were real. And also the bank might repossess your house and also you know, it's getting harder and harder to make a living on the home place. And also you've got to harvest the corn and all of this is true. So there are these sort of injections of the uncanny, but also if you're someone like Anna O'Brien, who's this young witch, who's like, this is her life now, everything is important because everything is real. And that means that dealing with witch is just as important as dealing with someone who's lost something and needs to find it. Gotcha. That makes good sense. So you mentioned this, this book, The Silver Bullet and Other American Witch Stories. And obviously, uh, if you've listened to Monster Talk, you know that I am really interested in silver bullets. <laughs> I the, tr- Tracking down and, and discovering that, that silver bullets were much more associated with witches than with werewolves up until the 1940s uh yeah like wildly yeah Yeah, i I mean it's i mean it's like silver bullets were really 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 important but for witches and shape changers not not werewolves in particular um and and so i didn't know this book existed that's really cool i'll have to track it down uh obviously i'll put a link in the show notes but uh when you were looking at witch lore of the appalachians or appalachians <laughs> i i am having trouble fighting my roots uh so uh, <laughs> this is embrace your roots it's that kind of podcast that's, that's right yeah when you when you're looking into witches of the appalachians uh did, did did you see a lot of stories involving silver bullets there's a couple yeah i'm actually like holding the book right now there's a lot of stories about they they tend to appear a lot in stories about shape-changing witches which are uh common of course throughout american and british folklore but turn up in the appalachians there will be cases where there's these there's these animals that are maybe kind of not animals and people will shoot at them and and the guns won't fire and then you know they get a a a medicine man come in and you know smelt them a silver bullet and they'll shoot it and then the next day someone in town is limping they're like aha it was you yeah, um, yeah, it's all that, except that it's a witch and not a werewolf, right? Yeah, it's right. that 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 whole trope gets moved over to werewolf floor, and I I just find that fascinating. It's the uh, I wounded, I knocked its ear off, and then there's some man in town that's got a bandage on their ear. You know, really? So if I can interject a little bit, so a lot of the um the 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 colonial perspective that came to the Appalachians was from Scots Irish descent. And so you almost see like a one-for-one transition of folklore from the British Isles to Appalachia. Mm -hmm. So that's where you get like black dog myths, like black shuck. Uh, He follows you. He may uh, uh, prelude a death in your family. There's lots of like death superstitions. If you see a bird, it's a death. If a mirror cracks, it's a death. Those are, they're really good. But then like, so... Even like the the ghost lore of like what to do with a ghost, how to um, uh, conjure a ghost, how to talk to a ghost, how to dispel a ghost. Like a lot of these come directly from the British Isles. And so like one of the long-term projects that I've got going on now is an exploration of like lesser known kind of local English folklore from different provinces and stuff like that. Because it's me and it's like, it's creaturey and it's kind of spooky. I tend to lean to the spookier and the creaturey sort of stories. So like these are the things that I'm attracted to, but there's a lot of like literal one for one parallels 
with Appalachian folklore. So uh, a lot of the like uh, lost brides disappearing in the river. There's a lot of river folklore, which has which actually comes a lot from like water goddesses and old like um, uh, Anglo-Saxon stuff from the British Isles, uh, or and or Roman. There's a lot of water stuff in general. So, like, but this like gets translated in the 17th, 18th, early 1900s as like baptism stuff. So there's a lot of like interesting like like as the culture shifts around it and as the cultural connotation like transforms into like what we think of as Appalachia today, like the folklore kind of gets dragged along with it. So there's I don't know, it's just it's it's a really interesting like like at the same time holdover, but at the same time like it's right on the cusp of everything that's happening societally like as the history of Appalachia has progressed. Yeah, I, I I've noticed that as well, and in uh, a lot of the way the folklore comes over from Europe or other. Well, if you look at, uh, it's true for everywhere that it comes from. If you look at uh, voodoo and hoodoo as it came over from Africa and got sort of transformed, uh, but also even the word itself, like the yeah. idea of goofer dust, like going and getting graveyard dirt, and if you get the dirt, then you can acquire the um, the powers of of whatever the person possessed. Like I like I was just digging into that the other day. It's really interesting. Nice pun. Like, nice pun. If the person was wealthy, then if you get their graveyard dirt, then you also will become wealthy. Or if they're really good with the ladies. Oh, that's really cool. That's a really cool sympathetic magic. I don't think I know that yeah. one. Yeah. 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 Uh, and then there's uh, uh, what I was going to say is the things like uh, from France, you had the uh, the Lou Guru, uh, which was more of a, in Europe, a, was kind of a classical werewolf, but when it came to America and got down into, yeah. yeah, it became more of like a boogeyman who lives out in the swamp, you know, like a, 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 a sort of a, a, it'll get you if you're bad kind of creature, uh, which is quite a bit different. But, but um, have I, I don't remember if I've talked about it on the show before, but. Uh, you the, have, you had that great. Uh, well, uh, we had, yeah, we had two episodes up. on it, but I can't remember if I told my black dog story. I, I don't remember if I Oh did. no. Wait, you seen one? What? Yeah, 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 it, I did. And uh, but I don't. So if I've told this story before, my apologies. You know, but when I when I was getting ready to get in the navy, I had to lose some weight, and uh, so I was. Uh, and I love jogging, but I still needed to lose some weight. Uh, just my build is very thick, um, and so I could run like twelve miles, but I always was on the borderline for fitness according to the body measurements. I hated that. Oh my god. Anyway, BMI is also <laughs> a piece of folklore. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but, but so, so you I was heard in, it here first, folks. It's true. Yeah, I was a, I was in fantastic shape as far as like what I could do. But apparently, you know, anyway, it doesn't matter. But I ran all the time. But I typically would work all day and then run at night. I was a night runner and I loved it. But, Ooh, but as I would run around my little hometown of Cartersville, um, there was an area where I would pick up a dog and the dog uh, belonged to a lady named Miss. I probably don't shoot her name. Her name was Miss Jolly. It's, I, I think she's passed on now. But um, but she had this this weird looking. Uh, her husband, I think, ran a junkyard. But she, the dog had one eye missing, and it had this huge underbite. But it was a big, thick lab, black lab. And so at night, when I would go running, that dog would would come. It would like see me. It would hop off the porch, and it would run with me for a couple of blocks, and then it would give up and then go back home. It didn't chase me. It just ran alongside with me, right? So I go off to the navy. Uh, I go to boot camp, I go spend some time in the Middle East, and I come back to my hometown, and my parents tell me that this dog has passed away, 
Uh, and I was sad to hear it because I'd gotten kind of used to it. Um, but uh, as I continued to run, uh, <laughs> one night I was running and suddenly uh, that dog appeared. <laughs> and it was clearly the same dog. It had one eye and a huge underbite. It's not something you could miss. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, normally it ran alongside me, but that night I left it behind. So, <laughs> so the next day. Uh, I went and asked Miss Jolly about her dog. I said, Miss um, Jolly, uh, my parents told me your dog uh, had passed away, but last night, I swear I saw it. <laughs> and she gave me a funny look. She said, well, uh, they told me that I had to keep it chained up, and I didn't want to. <laughs> so, so I told everybody it died, and I just let it out at night. <laughs> Oh, my God. <laughs> so, yeah. So it wasn't actually dead. It's dead now. Okay. <laughs> but uh, holy that cow. <laughs> that scared the poop out of me. So. I was going to say, your heart stops right there. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So, yeah. Yeah. So Black Shook rings real, real dear to me. <laughs> the, the, the Shuck is in the book. It's sort of like major appearance in one story. Um and uh, more supporting appearance in another. And having traveled in Latin America, uh, there's all the, obviously, you know, street dogs and pariah dogs. And it's really interesting to be around them because when you're around dogs in America, they are, by and large, very much pet. Sort of think of them as man's best friend. I love dogs. I grew up with dogs. But you go down to Guatemala or, or Colombia, and they're just dogs out on the street, living their lives, don't really have anything to do with or, or any interest in humans. And then you remember, oh, dogs are like medium-sized predatory mammals and are potentially <laughs> quite dangerous. Yes. And there's something about the black shuck in particular that for me is this like very, it's, it's an autonomous dog, you know? It's definitely a dog. It's not a wolf. It's a dog, but it's not a people dog. And sometimes there are these stories about the black shuck accompanying young women on the road at night and protecting them from harm. And sometimes there are stories about the black shuck following people for years. Um, Sometimes it's more of a metaphor. It can be like a metaphor for depression. Ah. It can be, um, it can be a really grim omen. It can be in some stories, like obviously like, the Beast of Bungay, it is a, it's a directly murderous entity. So there was a case in the 1600s, it was either 1500s or 1600s, and this is also part of the, this is one of the pieces that I did for my English folklore project, where a church suddenly burst into flames and lots of people were electrocuted to death. And there is a strange association between lightning and a black dog. There were multiple witness reports of a black dog bursting in through the church doors. And supposedly still, if you go there today, I haven't been there, but there are burn marks on the church door where supposedly the dog scratched at the door to get in. Yeah, we've done, uh, yeah, we did, we've done two episodes on black dogs and, and one was with uh, folklorist David Waldron. So if you want to hear a, a, an hour on that, you can go back to our show notes or and find that episode too. Yeah, kind of it reminds me of the Jersey Devil, where you know there's the folklore, and then there's this really cool uh, religious and political history behind the folklore that I find <laughs> as interesting, uh, but it's not nearly as widely known. And and that that's just 
it's one of those things when you when you there's the scary monster part, and then there's the hey, what does this mean? And you, as you say, metaphor figures right into that. And sometimes that is literally the monsterification of other religious groups or other political groups or Mm -hmm. other other social groups. Uh, As you say, even even hillbillies themselves have been turned into monsters in, in some ways, which is just ridiculous. Monsters are always political. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I guess so. So I was going to say, they're doing a monster conference in just a little bit south of Austin coming up next April, I believe. Uh, Joseph Laycock. Uh, oh, yeah. I'm, I know Joe. So Joe is um, trying to put together a, 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 a conference called Gods and Monsters, and I actually owe them a, uh, a, a paper I need to put together. But the uh, one of the things that he said in his invitation to submit uh, articles was uh, – a, a quote that said, uh, "Monsters are meaning machines," right? Mm-hmm. Which is wonderful, but 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 sometimes they're also monsters, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's that's sort of a balance that we uh, we try and strike in this book, which is that um, the monsters are are they're fun as monsters, you know, stuff like the uh, the hags and the raven mocker and the the hog of the bogs and and the awa they're they're all they exist perfectly well as monsters but when i was writing these stories i was kind of trying to find things to say with the monsters you know when the black shuck shows up um the first time it is as a monster and when the black shuck shows up the second time it's as a much more ambiguous and sort of figure of of, of mental illness of trauma of depression um which, as somebody, I, I mentioned this earlier, but I might have cut out, um, as somebody who deals with mental illness and depression, like, that's something that I feel like when I, I could really, like, dial into, and it gives the stories a lot more heft if the supernatural is also, the supernatural is, is many ways, is, is many times a poetic way of looking at history, and history that won't stay buried. You know, a ghost is is just the past that won't lie down. A monster is... Um, is an element of the unknown or, or a thing that scares us that, you know, gets all this baggage sort mm-hmm. of piled onto it. And the baggage is the fun bit, right? Like, because without baggage, a monster is just a toothy thing. And there's a lot of toothy things in the world. But the baggage is, is, the, is the cultural stuff and the history and the politics and the, the religion. And that's really what I think makes a monster interesting. Yeah. I mean, if you think about all the ways monsters are pre- presented in our culture i mean even even in the most uh what m- some people might consider not to be great cinema but things like the friday the 13th franchise where where monsters become symbols of punishment for sexual transgression or mm-hmm. where with with werewolf stories where monsters represent uh the, the sort of the duality of man and the rage versus reason kind of uh approach i mean yeah they're they're beautiful in that way but Man, depression is such a real monster, and it's it's so challenging because of the way it saps your ability to get things done, or your interest in life, or, or it can steal from you all the things that are important it's to you. Inescapable, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, it's so it's like a vampire, and it's yeah. like it's like a curse, yeah. and it's like uh, okay. it's like a demon. It's like so many things. All these stories. Uh, it's like the conjuring. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, they they these these things. It's like I wish they were real because it would be so much easier to deal with a demon than it would be depression. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, yeah, yeah. 
And, well, yeah. that's me. I mean, like, I suffer from a lot of the same life as an artist, but, like, that's a lot of the, the same <laughs> issues that I, that I focused with, like, like, dealt with a lot of the time, like, a lot of the time over the years. So that's definitely a place that, and especially, like I said, growing up with a person who believed in the literal existence of aliens are going to get you, ghosts are going to get you, like, those were a little bit less so my speed than, than more so the like let's fi- go find the Loch Ness monster like that's more my like okay cool it's less threatening <laughs> it is right right but at the same time it still kind of inhabits that same basic like like socio-political like psychosomatic sort of core where it still is representing like whether or not it's your actual trauma it's somebody else's trauma so that's kind of the the place that I always approach, like especially like like I said, the Raven Mocker or like these things that are like they don't have definition. How do you describe the in, in the indescribable? Like, and then I have to actually at some point I have to put a pencil to paper and actually draw the thing. So like like that's something that I always have in consideration when designing. Well, I've got a house and, full of aspiring author or artists rather. Uh, one author. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I have I have three children and all of them love creating art. And I was just going to ask you what 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 do you use to do your art? Like how what medium are you working in? Um so for a long time I worked digitally. I was super Photoshop person. Um honestly, coming back to traditional artwork and just doing like soup so all the things that I'm doing for Anna O'Brien Ghost Days are just well, the the cover art is is an actual physical painting, and all the interior spots are just pencil on paper. So coming back to that has kind of been like a journey. Cool. <laughs> I've, I've been trying to get my daughter to use a a, a you know a, an art pad with her Mac, and uh, she's just not that interested. She likes to pick out paper and ink, and she'll paint with anything or draw with anything in the real world, but doesn't seem that interested in digital. And I I, I think. Unfortunately, people are going to expect her to know the digital side, so I'll keep hammering at her because no both, right? Why not no both? You know what? So, like, I learned how to use Photoshop on the job. Nobody taught me. I went to a super Luddite art school, so, you know, like, that comes when it comes. If she wants to go into that direction, then, like, that's fine. But like, No, she'll do it exactly okay. like I say or no, – no, I know what yeah. – <laughs> I'm the most laid-back dad. I'm ridiculous. Yeah, it's <laughs> like – before you go, if you've listened yeah. to the show, you probably know what uh-huh. I'm about to ask. So, oh man! All right, guys, <laughs> what's your favorite monsters? Asher, you go first. Uh, black, black shock. Okay. That's just so you. Yeah. Any particular reason besides what you've already talked about? <laughs> um, it really is that autonomous dog thing. It's like it's one of I like spirits that they show up and you don't quite know what you're getting from them. That sort of tilt toward the spooky, but also like have all these really complex facets. And you know, I just like dogs. I know what I get from them. I get a twenty percent increase in speed. It's amazing. <laughs> Plus five agility. That's right. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. Nice. <laughs> I don't. Um, yeah, I just like uh, I like dogs. I like spooky dogs. I like spooky dogs. You don't know what they're gonna do. There you go, spooky do. Mm-hmm. Spooky do. I like Wait, that. Go ahead, Tiffany. Your turn. I'm gonna go with uh, Cadborosaurus because really? Ooh. yeah, I've always been fascinated by the uh, plesiosaurid type, like sea serpent family of sea monsters, but. 
that was one of the first ones. That, you remember in the 90s, there was all the like paranormal shows and everything. And that was I one do. of the first ones that I saw that was like, we found a body. There is a physical specimen, but some idiot threw it away. And I was like, I remember being like 11 years old, just being like, you morons, how dare you? <laughs> and like, like I'm 11 and I'm going to tell you what's what. This is for science, listen. And so like, <laughs> I remember being that child and being like, we have to go back and we have to get another Edward body. And so like, that was like one of my first intersections of folklore and like interest in science so it's like both of those were branching paths for me at the same time so yeah and i I bet i bet you use an art caddy all the time now (laughs) honestly like whenever i go back to the cryptozoo type stuff that's one of the first like prompts that i start with is like let's go back to cadborosaurus so yeah sharks and busted whales out here there's still how many sea stories are there about well, we found a body. We pulled the floor. It was really weird looking, but it stank. Know. It stank. We had to throw it back in the water. Yeah, I was say, it was too stinky. You better throw it in the trash. So I was in the Navy. It's got to be pretty skank before a sailor would just throw it overboard. The ocean itself smells bad enough. It does. <laughs> it's true. It's true. There's actually um, – that just reminds me of one, one last – this is actually an Ozark story, but Ozarks are basically just the Western Appalachians for all intents and purposes. <laughs> Um, there's a story of a, of this big tusked, uh, lizard called a gow row. Okay. That supposedly lives in the cavern in these like deep caverns and devils in devil's hole in, um, the, uh, in the Ozarks. And somebody supposedly shot a couple and like shipped them off to the Smithsonian, but wouldn't you know it, they never showed up and oh, no! well, Oh, uh, yeah. how do they even stay in business? They're losing those things. They're losing giant human skeletons. <laughs> Is there no, no quality control in the Smithsonian? It's ridiculous. I was going to say somebody needs the QI test. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's give them the benefit of the doubt and just assume that the roads weren't so great back then. Oh, that's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> they, you know, if you want some interesting history, support your local museums. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, I was going to say the the history of the Smithsonian is is really interesting. I mean, the uh, the amount of money that went to create it is uh, astonishingly large. It's really amazing. Um, and uh, I, it was covered uh, on one of the seasons of Connections, the series by James Burke, uh, who is uh, a, a, a historian and TV presenter, and it's it's a uh, I can't summarize it here, but I'll try to find a, 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 the episode and put it in the show notes on YouTube or something. But it's really neat. Um, it was, I think it was like one of the shorter versions, so maybe season two or season three. Not really important for this conversation, but uh, I, I do like my museums and the history of how they become the way they are is fascinating to me. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for joining us tonight on Monster Talk. Uh, and congratulations on being funded, and I hope that uh, you're able to take this and get a little more uh, out of it and maybe get those hardbacks out. This is really cool, and the artwork's beautiful, and the writing looks great, and uh, I, I haven't read the whole thing, but what I did read was really interesting, and so I'm, I'm, I'm really interested to see the final product. Well, thank you so much, Blake. Thank you. Thank you so much. Monster Dog. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and you just heard an interview with Asher Elbine and Tiffany Terrell, the creators of a new illustrated book project about Appalachian folklore called Anna O'Brien Ghost Days. A link to the Kickstarter is in the show notes at monstertalk.org. 
I hope you'll check it out, and if it's to your liking, that you'll support it. But act fast, because it took me longer to get this episode out than I wanted, and there's not much time left on the Kickstarter. A link to it and a bunch of other stuff that we talked about in this episode are at the show notes at monstertalk.org. Monster Talk's an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine, and the views and opinions expressed on this show are those of myself and my guests, and don't necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. And as always, thanks for listening. For more skepticism? Want to learn the truth about the scientific controversies of our time? Then subscribe to Skepti, the quarterly magazine Stephen Jay Gould called the best journal in the field. To subscribe, visit Skeptic.com today. There was a dude I knew in art school who only made girls' panties, and that was his art. Like, that was fine. Like, fine. I'm like, sorry, like, what? Just live, live your life. He made panties? No, no, I didn't make panties. No, no, he, he, what did you say he made? There was some art school kid who was like, we were in a narrative drawing class, and he kept making panties. Are you talking about the undergarment? Yes. Yeah. Okay, all right, just making sure, all right. <laughs> Very straight sidetrack, but I can keep, I have more stories from art school, so. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. <laughs> I'm so glad I did not go to art school. I got to play a Call of Cthulhu game with a bunch of artists from SCAD, which was... Uh, was I wish I'd done SCAD. That was, yeah. That, it, they, cool. you know, they've opened a big school in Atlanta. It looks really, really cool. Speaking of artists, I need to take a huge on you, we. Uh, <laughs>